Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another segment of Broadcasting Politics, sponsored by Students for a Better Future. Our producer, Doran, Doreen LaGuardia. Please take the time to donate to a great cause, Students for a Better Future. We're out there in the campus, every college campus out there, and also fighting human trafficking. Doreen LaGuardia is doing a great job doing that. And she's producing the show, and I'm here, your host, Cisco Acosta. Luther May is not here today. Uh, hopefully, he'll be here next week. But we have a great show tonight. We have Gabriela Bosch. She is an expert on millennials. She's a millennial herself. She's the best-selling author of four books. But we'll have her in a couple of minutes. Let me just briefly go really fast through what's been going on. We had Mark Zuckerberg testify before the Senate today about censorship of conservatives out there. It really, really, uh, Ted Cruz did, did a fantastic job. And it's coming to light in regards to what's going on with um, the censorship from Facebook. Luther, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yes, great, fantastic. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, just briefly before our guest comes, is, her name is Gabriela Bosch. She's an expert on millennials. She'll be here in a, in a couple minutes. I just spoke to her. Um, but I was just briefly mentioning about the uh, millennials. And um, I mean, about Mark Zuckerberg. What do you think about him testifying in front of Congress? Well, he must be doing a whole lot of lying because they caught him this time, but what happens to him, like all the rest of them, don't seem to ever do anything to him once they get him doing something wrong, don't they? Right, right. So, uh, we're guilty people, but we don't have prosecutors or anybody that'll do anything. Right, right. Know. Luther, you really sound sad. really low. Um, Maybe you, if you, if you can move to another location because I can't hear you. I'm, I'm losing you. Okay, let me move. When's the guest coming on? One second. Uh, yeah, in a, in about three minutes. So uh, we were just going to touch on the Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress and how um, we had Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, basically attacking uh, Zuckerberg and really putting it out there that you know we know that uh, Facebook. Censorship uh, censors conservatives. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, uh, on another topic, we have this situation in Syria. The Syrian government, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was glad you brought that up. I mean, when I talk about the, uh, these, what's going on over there, they're killing these kids as women. That's them. Yes. Sick. Yes. Well, what do we it's very sick. What can we believe? What's really going on over there? That's true. That is true. But we know that that the uh, the government of Bashar Assad and the governments of of Iran, in cahoots with the Russians, uh, it's not a good it's not a good setting. And uh, we we just need to step it up and, and and put the pressure on on trying to get rid of Bashar Assad. That's my feeling. What, what's your take? Well, he does need to be removed when he starts uh, when he starts killing his women and children of his own land. Uh, pretty sick. Yes. These people are people, not his enemies. So that don't make any sense. Uh, part of depopulation, I guess. Sold all the money. That's probably that's people. probably one of the reasons. But let me. Uh, I'm going. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and and, and give uh, our guests a call right now. Okay. And um. Hold on, hold on. Let me just. Um... Hey, this is Gabrielle. Gabrielle, welcome to the to the broadcast in politics our segment every week here 
basically waiting for you to come on. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. Definitely. I have my co my co host Luther Mays, uh on the other line and, and, and we're looking forward to uh having a good really good conversation on millennials. I don't believe we've had a conversation, a real conversation on millennials millennials, especially with an expert like yourself. Um so can you tell us a little about how this whole process of being a, a best-selling author of four books on your generation, which also includes my son's generation, which is he's a millennial too. So the millennial entrepreneur. Yeah, so I've written a, a number of books. I, I really started getting into this space of studying my generation when I was 17, actually, which is when I wrote my first book um, about millennials because I really felt that um, that there were so many people talking about millennials, but no one who was either a millennial themselves or anyone who had actually studied my generation was really um, was really a voice. And so I uh, had again written a number of books and came out with my company, The Millennial Solution, about five years ago, um, working with top companies, top brands, and and um, presidential candidates and, and military generals, helping them better understand really what motivates the next generation um, with our science-based method. Right. That's, uh, now, do you see a difference or is there a comparison between millennials and baby boomers? That was my first question that I wanted, because I'm part of that somewhat, not quite close to being a baby boomer, but not that far away from being a baby boomer. Do you see a a comparison, a difference, or a huge difference, or what What are the similarities? Yeah, generations tend to kind of swing from um, from kind of more dominant generations to more recessive. Um, so you see a, a, actually a big similarity between millennials and baby boomers, and then you see Generation X, which is in between, um, as, as a generation that tends to kind of feel, feel left out, like we've been around kind of the entire time. So um, but you see every generation as they're entering into their, their 20s. Now, keep in mind, millennials are ages 18 to 36, 37 right now. Um, so we're talking about a massive generation. Um, and, and so you're, you're always going to see that challenge that a new generation is facing, entering in the workforce, entering into to their early adult years, trying to adjust. Um, but really, the, the big differentiators with millennials comes down to technology, access to information, mm-hmm and the global marketplace that we're in. Those are really the three factors we found that have really differentiated this next generation. Definitely, definitely. Hey, Luther, do you have a question for Gabriella? Yeah, you said they're similar to the baby boom, huh? The people, the millennials. Well, I was born in the last nine days of the baby boom, by the way. I was born in the 63. And that sounds like a good thing. Yeah, you, well, well, you're right on the you're right on the cusp, my friend. So I always tell cuspers, you know, you get to kind of pick the best and um, best of both generations and kind of decide what you want to be depending on the day. <laughs> well, I'm, before, I'm born I'm born uh, eight days before uh, January January first, nineteen sixty four. So I'm definitely the last of baby boomers. <laughs> well, and I, I, I call I, us I, the last of the Mohicans. Well, Gabriella, you know, the millennials have been taking a bad rap for a while, Uh, contrary to the baby boomers. The baby boomers were, they they set an example of ethics, work ethics, integrity. Uh, You know, they've been labeled as representing what, what made America great. Why are the millennials taking such a bad rap like being, okay, they're living, still living under, in, in, in mom's and dad's basement. They're not doing, they're playing video games until 4 o'clock in the morning. They're not getting around. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're not succeeding. They're, they're, they're not uh, buying more uh, new homes. They've been taking, I mean, and I, sometimes I feel, uh, because I have, my son is a millennial. That's really true. There's there's a lot of young millennials that are actually doing really well. Maybe not at the level that baby boomers, but let me get your uh, expert opinion because that's your you know your expertise. 
yeah, I, I think we really see that this generation does get a bad rap. I mean, we're called entitled, we're called addicted to technology. I mean, kind of fill in the blank. Everyone has an opinion about millennials. Uh, but but really when it comes down to it, what we've discovered is, is really kind of the, the core motivators that get millennials excited really isn't that different from other generations. Every generation wants to feel significant. Every generation right. wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Every generation wants to um, tangibly feel that their work matters. Um, but what's different about this next generation, the millennial generation, is that they're so used to constant feedback. Think about it. The, the Facebook, the Instagram, um, the, the Snapchats, everything is giving them um, feedback about how they're doing. Um, and so they're coming into uh, adulthood expecting feedback about, you know, a relationship or, or how they're doing on the, on the job at a much faster pace than other generations have in the past. So again, it's not that millennials are that different. It's just the, the frequency and the expectation um, is certainly unique. Right, right. Luther, uh, anything on that? What Gabriella just mentioned? Well, you know, the kids got a lot of pressure on them, you know, the new, uh, the internet and all that. Yeah, I agree with her on that, you know. It's a lot of pressure on those kids. Right, but I know you brought up the technology part, which was contrary to the part uh, what, what the baby boomer, baby boomers actually experienced. I mean, they, they, they actually experienced something different. They, they, the boom of the 1950s, uh, owning their, own, their homes, the automobile uh, industry, the industrial revolution. So what type of revolution besides technology do you feel the millennials are actually being a big part of it today? So the, the big thing that we've seen with millennials, and as someone who studied generations for it's been you know over 11 years for me now, studying my generation in comparison to the others, and, and really what differentiates millennials is this concept of justice. Uh, millennials are a generation that's extremely passionate about justice. They want to make sure that everything that they do matters, and, and they don't want to work for a company or buy a brand unless they know um, that that brand supports um, a, a cause or is of value and, and is, frankly, a good representation of the values that that individual has. So that's why right. we see millennials who are willing to take um, jobs at nonprofits or jobs at a lower pay scale um, because they believe in the mission of the organization. It's why we see millennials wanting to support brands um, who have a philanthropic cause baked in. They're not a nonprofit, but they're going to buy from a brand um, that's making money because they believe that brand is giving back. They pay their workers a fair wage. They, you know, give a pair of shoes away for every pair of shoes that they buy. I mean, there's so many examples of of how millennials are applying this concept of justice to how they're living out their lives. Right. Is there a difference between a liberal millennial and a conservative millennial or a libertarian millennial or is basically one standard, millennials. Well, there's a huge difference between even types of conservative or types of liberal <laughs> uh, millennials. I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a generation that's 83 million um, in the United States alone. So this is, you know, if you have two kids, you, I mean, there's, there's no way that even the two of them are similar and they were raised relatively the same. Um, so there's an incredible amount of diversity. I'm really glad that you brought that up because, I think it's a really big myth that people have that they believe um, that all millennials are the same. So they assume, oh, you're a millennial, you're great at technology. And that may or may not be the case. Um, oh, you're a millennial, you know, you're going to vote Democrat. Again, also, two, not the case. Statistically, millennials support Democratic candidates two to one. Um, but that's certainly not news that the younger generation tends to lean to the left more. But what we're right. seeing, and this is really interesting, is that millennials are really one of the first generations in American history that are more likely to be a um, to consider themselves apolitical or or consider themselves a political independent. So that's why we are seeing more millennial libertarians because you know I think half the millennials who call themselves libertarian don't know what it means. It's just neither, and and they're saying, yeah, I don't like the government. I'll consider myself that. Um, and I think that this generation is really well poised for actually being the next generation to usher in a successful third party. 
Right, right. That's that definitely uh, we need that. Uh, I personally, myself, I consider myself a libertarian, um, but but I know that my son has, you know, leanings in either direction, uh, depending on, on on the depending on the on the subject. So that's good. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that. You know, you clarify that. Um, Luther, you have a question for Gabriella. Yeah, she was talking about a third party, and I do believe that will be an independent party before too long because um, both the parties are basically a double-headed, uh, a double-headed snake with a handshake. You know, there really ain't much between the, the uh, Democrats and Republicans anymore, and and the kids are aware of that, and a lot of them are libertarians, just just like you just said. Uh, but yeah, there's a big change coming in this country in the next 10, 20 years, I believe. What do you think of that? I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that it's the, the accountability factor where, you know, looking at Capitol Hill, um, I don't live very far from there, and, and things do tend to look pretty similar, whether there's a D after their name or an R after their name. And, and I think in an era where we have extreme access to information, um, and that, you know, should mean extreme accountability, um, that we're going to essentially look for represent, representatives. I'm not talking about changing the system of government that we have, but, but changing those who represent us because they're clearly not a repre- representation of, of the people that they serve. And I think even today, you know, for example, with Mark Zuckerberg up on, on Capitol mm-hmm. Hill testifying and, and um, in the Senate hearing, and there was a complete disconnect. And you could kind of see for those, those, those senators who were questioning that they didn't quite understand the technology that is Facebook. And um, I know they're in their 70s, they're in their 80s, they didn't grow up with this technology like my generation did. And, and I think that as we're starting to have more technology, um, whether it's, you know, artificial intelligence or, or um, you know, cybersecurity issues, um, having those individuals inside of Congress who represent the, the people in a, more, in, a, in a better fashion, I think, is incredibly important for the future of our democratic republic. Definitely, definitely. Uh, and, and, and I can speak in regards to technology because... Uh, I'm a technology guy. I'm an IT guy. So uh, also, and, and, and so I understand what you're saying that a lot of these politicians in Washington don't really have an understanding of what cybersecurity, what what basically uh, the the internet is all about. And but I have to tell you, I have to tell you that Mark Zuckerberg, in regards to what Facebook has you know has been doing in censorship individuals, especially conservatives. One thing that Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, he basically called them out on that. And I and I'm glad he did because a lot of people don't really understand and they don't believe that Facebook actually has done what they they've done. They they they're totally right. I, I've spoken to and they're like, no, that's not possible. How, how, why would they do that? Because they sell that to the highest bidder. Okay. That's part of it, but um, did you did you find the the uh, credible what Mark Zuckerberg testified today? Comfortable what what, what he said in regards to uh, this whole situation with um, the the breaching of data of so many individuals, uh, Facebook users. Well, it certainly wasn't surprising. Um, I, I think that we have all seen kind of the slow creep of technology into our lives. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that many, and particularly millennials, have come to terms with the fact that we exchange our personal information um, for the power of convenience, um, which is extremely dangerous as a society as a whole. Um, but what Mark Zuckerberg did on, on Capitol Hill really was a no surprise. You know, it was, it was a, a, an apology tour um, for, for what Facebook had done, an acknowledgement, and, and you really did have to see between the lines um, that he was acknowledging that, yes, Facebook collects your data, yes, they sell it, um, yes, you know, we have opt-in information, we, we, we know how many people you're calling even if you, if you allow that. And, and I think that for those who are paying attention, and I think this is the important part, for those who are paying attention, um, it was a really loud warning um, to not trust 
the terms and services and not trust those entities um, that we give our, our privacy and our, our, our personal information to on a daily basis. Right, right. Well, I, 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 I think this is a wake-up call for a lot of people that I've spoken to who were not aware of what Facebook is all about. They were on, they've been on Facebook, but they didn't understand what Facebook is really all about. And when I started to explain to them, it's like, oh, my God, is that true? And I said, yes, it is. But anyway, enough with uh, Mr. Zuckerberg. Um, where are millennials in regards to religion today? Yeah, and that's a, an issue that is not only near and dear to my heart, it's also really quite fascinating because we've seen millennials exit from traditional religion um, at a pretty pretty alarming rate. We've got nine out of ten Christians who were, I'm sorry, millennials who were raised Christian, for example, um, no longer associate with that particular faith, with, which you know is is a, a massive number um, here in the United States, where Christianity is the uh, largest religion uh, by far. But it's fascinating when you start to discuss with millennials kind of their their religious affiliation we see more of them considering themselves spiritual consider themselves kind of um none of the above and it's not that millennials don't love and respect religion we're actually seeing um the numbers pretty on par with the other generations um that millennials do believe in an entity bigger than themselves um whether that's god or Allah or or they, they follow, you know, the, the teachings of Buddha, for example, um, they're, they're believing in kind of the religiosity, but they're not wanting to label themselves. And I think it comes back to that same mindset why millennials are considering a third party or a no party, um, because they don't want to be labeled. They don't want to be pigeonholed where someone says, oh, you're a Christian, you believe this, or oh, you're a Democrat, you believe that, or oh, you're a Hindu. You know, they're, they're not wanting to uh, become so associated with those terms because whether we like it or not, many of those terms have been hijacked and have had negativity attached to them. And so millennials are more likely to be an unlabeled generation. But don't mistake our, our um, unaffiliation to, to apathy. Millennials are incredibly passionate and they are very interested in things like politics and religion. They may just not wear it you know, in the traditional sense that other generations have in the past. So how would that how would that decision making and taking those those positions affect political campaign political future political uh, elections if 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 what I'm not and let me just briefly mention that something I would think that even though they value and they don't want to be labeled. And I agree with that. My son doesn't like the labels either. I would say that there has to be a leaning one way or the other for a party. Uh, even though, like you said, there will be a third party. But until that happens, how, how from your conversations, interactions, how would they vote? I mean, uh, they have to go one way or the other, right? Well, um, we are seeing that they are, you know, they are choosing a side. And like I said, millennials do vote Dem- when they do show up to vote. They vote Democrat two to one. Um, mm-hmm. But but this is a generation, keep in mind, that, you know, will not only choose the other option, but they'll create the other option. And, and we're seeing that particularly with a generation that's been raised with so much technology and frankly in such an entrepreneurial world where 67% of my generation wants to start their own business one day. So they're constantly thinking, how can I do something? How can I create something? Is there an app I can start? You know, um, it seems like every other millennial wants to, to start an app or, or build an app. And, and they're constantly thinking, what else could we do here? So I, I don't think that it's um, too soon to say that they're going to create their kind of their option C. Um, in the meantime, yes, they may have to, you know, pick between chicken or fish, you know, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to be looking for their alternative option that's going to be more reflective of them and their principles, not just a, a political party. Got it. Hey, Luther, uh, you have a, a question for Gabriela. Yeah, I uh, talk to young kids all the time. You know, she says it's two to one Democrat right now, but 
she's right. They're going to form another party because they know not to trust either side of the parties. They, um, they're on internet. They're on the black net. They, they know more what's going on than most average adults in this country because they've been raised on the internet and they know the internet. So the big can of worms is open. And that's where this, where she's talking about the center party comes in because they, they, they got to turn somewhere. The two parties right. we have, they're neither one. They're like I said, they're a double-headed snake with a handshake, you know. So she's right on about that. Now, Gabriella, in regards to millennials, you study millennials here in the United States. Have you have you studied or interviewed um, or done research on millennials in different parts of the world, in Europe, in Latin America, in Africa? Uh, what bring is there is there something that brings them together or is there a huge separation especially with the millennials in the middle east especially in, in, in very totalitarian systems totalitarian systems uh where basically the uh they're restricted how how, how does that how, how does that uh the difference between all the different millennials in different parts of the world yeah really great question and it's a question that i get nearly every time I speak and we speak at conferences and work with work with executives and, and do quite a bit of work in, in the research space, whether that's analyzing it or conducting it ourselves. And, and a short answer is um, is that yes, millennials from these other countries tend to uh, rank on our studies very similar to millennials in the United States. Um, I've done research in Europe. I've done research with millennials from African countries, Asian countries. Um, we spent um, quite a bit of time in Latin America studying millennials and generational dynamics there. And, and there's going to be a different flavor based off of um, where the millennial is. But what we actually found was more influential was who raised the millennial. So, um, okay. you know, was it their parent? Was it their aunt? Um, what, what were the influencing factors for that generation? So, for example, working in, in Croatia, I work with Microsoft in Croatia on their generational challenges. Uh, they were dealing with kind of this post-Soviet mindset um, that their parents were raised with that millennials didn't quite resonate with. And so millennials were actually leaving those countries and going more towards um, typical kind of Western European um, countries like, like Europe and France, et cetera. So um, there's certainly consistencies we see across the data um, that I think are really important and really powerful. Um, but, you know, again, it really is going to depend on, on who raised that person, which I think certainly makes right. sense to consider what most influenced them. Right. No, no, I, 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 would, I would agree. But is there something that, that you've seen in regards to that actually brings them together? Absolutely, and, and it really does come with to those three things I talked about at the top of the show. Is it, it has everything to do with with this global mentality, um, access to information and technology, and that's what we found more and more that this generation has in common, uh, no matter who they are or where they were born. So you're saying that millennials are very uh, believe in, glo- in, in in the globalist um, message. Absolutely. We've actually even seen millennials consider themselves citizens of the world here in the United States above citizens of the United States. Um, So we are seeing an incredible global mindset for this generation, which, um, you know, can be incredibly powerful um, or it could be incredibly dangerous, really depending on how that power is wielded. But in Europe, in Europe, we've had this global globalist mentality of open borders you know if you're part of the european union you're you're able to you know basically go from one country to another with no restrictions right that hasn't really worked out really well for the europeans how do based on your conversations do the millennials still believe in that citizens of the world open borders where you can go from from one place to another with no restrictions? I think it certainly is going to depend, of course, on, on what, what millennial you're going to be talking to. So, I mean, okay. statistically, you're going to see, you know, uh, some, some millennials who may say, you know, well, why not? That's great. You know, the more the merrier. You know, why shouldn't we allow them here in, in the United States, for example, where we're having, you know, discussions every other day on, on, on immigration 
And and so some millennials may say, you know, of course, that makes so much sense, and that's where we see these DACA conversations. Or you may mm-hmm. see other millennials who actually live on the border um, or millennials who actually live in sanctuary cities and have seen the negative impact of unre- unregulated, unregulated immigration and say, you know, that's actually not a good idea. Um, my family's been hurt from it. I've seen people killed, et cetera. So, um, so, again, I think that this is a really great example. I'm glad you brought it up that not all millennials are the mm-hmm. same. So much of it is going to come down to their personal experience and, frankly, um, the, the access to information because this generation is drowning in information. We have, right. um, Luther said it really well, we have so much access to information. The, the Internet is literally in our pockets. And so because of that, this generation has information, but that doesn't mean that we have wisdom. And so what I tell people all the time is millennials don't need other generations for information because we have the Internet for that, but we need other generations for application and interpretation. And that's right. where powerful conversations like this come in mind and where your show comes in is because you have to give context to a generation that, frankly, many of them haven't lived long enough to really get the appropriate context to why things are the way that they are. Right. Luther? Luther? Okay, you probably stepped up. Uh, in your trips around the world, uh, which have been the most memorable uh, experiences you've had with millennials? You know, going to Latin America was probably one of the most interesting uh, because of one particular exchange I had with a woman at a conference, and um, she was a generation, uh, she was a baby boomer, kind of um, late Gen X, early baby boomer, and she um, she came up to me, I was talking about millennials and, and gender inequality in the workplace and how many millennial women at least in the United States, are not interested in necessarily pursuing um, kind of the shattering of the glass ceiling, this idea that we're going to, um, you know, take out, you know, this kind of misogynist kind of we're going to be CEOs. I said what we're finding with with American millennial women is that they're more likely to have more flexible hours, not be as aggressive in, in building their career past a certain point because they prefer a lifestyle and work-life balance versus, um, you know, going and, and kind of giving everything up to be top of the pile. And it was really fascinating because um, this, this woman looked at me and she almost had tears in her eyes um, when she <laughs> said, you know, so, so are we not going to have any women CEOs? And is everything we did for nothing? It was a really fascinating exchange because here was a woman who um, was a professional. She'd done incredible things. She had worked at the ladder um, in in uh, Peru, uh, no less. So I mean, she had mm-hmm. you know some really interesting cultural factors, and you know she just looked at me like, why isn't this next generation picking up the torch that we left them? And I think right. that's a, a really interesting difference between the generations. Is is a priority for one generation isn't necessarily the priority for the next generation. And so it's extremely important as a leader for you to not project your own priorities, your own principles on the next generation and, and assume that they're going to value the same things that you value because that simply isn't the case. Right, right. Especially in Latin America where, where women uh, for such a long time were really not able to uh, succeed. They were basically homemakers. And now it's, a, it's such a new generation of women, you know, in politics, in business, entrepreneur. It's it's just grown so so much, and uh, the culture is is actually changing drastically uh, in a lot of ways. In my in my travels throughout South America, uh, that that I've seen. Um, do you feel that? American women, American millennium women are moving away from the feminist trend, the push, the, the, the revolution of, that started off with Gloria Steinman? And well, I think how, it how they... certainly depends on what you mean by feminism. And I, I, think that that's, um, I think that's where a lot of people have either gotten in trouble or, or gotten a little confused is because you know, we see with the Me Too movement, for example, um, where, you know, feminism kind of came rip-roaring back. But, but that's really where 
so many people got upset is because, you know, one person's definition of feminism um, isn't necessarily the other. So at its most basic, you know, definition, I think that people would understand is that, you know, feminism is basically a recognition that, that women can do and what men can do on a very general level. Um, but I, I think that this deeper, you know, shattering of the glass ceiling and, you know, female CEOs, et cetera, um, we're certainly not seeing uh, millennials pursue the traditional career path, but also, too, we're not seeing it with men either. On a daily basis, I work with executives in, 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 in major corporations. We work with law firms quite a bit. And this is fascinating. In American law firms, they're seeing many millennials not pursuing the partner track, which, you know, is for most lawyers, the whole point of working there is to become a right. partner one day. But millennial women and millennial men are both saying, you know, it's not really worth it. I don't really want to give up, you know, my youth and vitality and, you know, years of my life to become a partner, you know, just so that I can say I was a partner. That that doesn't do it for them, um, to, to put it another way. So because of that, you know, we're seeing some patterns. It's not just women. Um, we're just seeing, in general, a, a generation, my generation, resetting priorities to say, you know, it's great to be successful in business, but at what cost? Right. And sticking to women, are millennial women extending and pushing marriage or living together or not committing longer? Well, what's the tr- what, what is the trend in regards to millennial women, not just in the United States, but based on your research across, uh, across the world in regards to marriage? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing the average, we're seeing both men and women uh, delay marriage um, for about seven years longer than other generations. So the average millennial female is getting married at 28, the average male is getting married at 31. Um, so the implications of that, as you can imagine, economically are pretty interesting. They're putting off um, buying houses. They're putting off having kids. Um, they're they're putting off moving to more suburban areas. And so the impact of that is really interesting because you're seeing cities having to kind of guesstimate um, about city planning. They're having to kind of think about you know, everything from the companies are having to think about, okay, well, how many baby bottles, you know, are we going to be selling in five years? And, and these are really real questions um, that our economy needs to figure out because millennials are the largest generation that's ever existed. And, and how and when they start families is literally going to make or break the economy. And so it's really important for, for businesses in those industries, whether it's you're a real, real estate agent or a mortgage broker um, or, you know, interior designer or, you know, you sell baby bottles, you know, you're going to have to start to think about uh, and then start to effectively predict, okay, when's the next wave of, of the, the millennials settling down because that's going to be extremely important um, to your cash flow at the end of the year. So uh, are they being targeted by marketing companies a lot more than anyone, any other, any other group. Of course. But, you know, that comes back to our conversation about Facebook and, and the access to information yeah. that they have, you know, uh, this generation has been, you know, marketed to since, you know, utero, basically. Um, we're so uh-huh. used to having someone sell us something. Um, so because of that, we're actually a much harder sell uh, companies who do want to reach out to us, recruiters who want to hire us, um, have to have to fight for re- uh, relevance in a generation that's just so noisy. Um, so you're having to provide more value so that this generation trusts you sooner right. um, because just saying, you know, buy my toothpaste, six out of seven dentists really like it, um, isn't <laughs> necessarily going to uh, win over a generation who's more likely to see how many stars it has on Amazon than how many doctors you got to approve it. Right. We have our co-host, uh, Luther, you're back. Uh, you have a question for Gab- Gabriella. Uh, no, I, was, I, I lost the call. I just thought I'm going to continue to listen here for a minute. I got okay. excited for that. Sorry no problem. That. No problem. I'll, I'll continue. Uh, what's the, um, in regards to millennials, the buying power of millennials today, not just in the United States, around the world, if you have the data on that. 
Yeah, so millennials just in 2017 became the largest uh, consumer market in the United States. So that means that they're the ones deciding, you know, the 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 price of goods, the access, the the means in which you're marketing, and the means of delivery. That's why we're seeing so many brands moving more towards subscription models, um, where you sign up once and things are delivered to your door. So it's more of an intuitive marketing. Um, but that's why we're seeing more companies, rather than selling on the shelves of their local store, spend more of their time um, and marketing efforts in things like Amazon, because millennials are looking for that convenience factor. Uh, so this generation certainly um, buys for different reasons. It's not that we don't buy the same thing. Uh, we work with a lot of auto dealers. And, and that question has come up multiple times. Are millennials even going to buy cars in an era of Uber and Lyft and public transportation and and all the data shows that they will um, but the type of car and how they buy that car is going to be different we're not necessarily going to walk into the lot of a, of a car dealership we're going to do all the research beforehand we're going to watch the youtube videos we're going to you know look at all the reviews to see what kind of car we want if it's reliable etc and if we do walk on a car dealership lot we're going to say you know does it come in blue and do you have one here i mean the so the whole um industry um, is changing the the widget that they sell may not change uh, but how they ch change it is fundamentally being shaken up by this generation fantastic um luther okay uh so the buying power in regards to actual numbers you don't have it No, this generation is the largest consumer the largest. market. Yeah. Consumer market. How about in regards to this fascinates me because I'm uh, I've been into organic for a long time, uh, and I was you know very health conscious, uh, food conscious. Based on your research, millennials, what, what do they stand in regards to organic, health conscious, and being uh, food conscious? Yeah, and that's kind of where it gets pretty interesting. Um, this generation is fairly uh, fairly health conscious, you could say, um, but the numbers are kind of show an interesting fact where this generation is actually, they spend the most on health food, but they actually rank the most obese. Um, so, wow. you know, wow, kind of anecdotally, you'd kind of, you know, tease my generation for wanting to lose weight, but maybe eating too much of the healthy food, we're not quite sure. Um, but, you know, we're, we're living in an era where access to quality food um, is more important than ever. Um, I think socially, it's important for millennials to take care of themselves, whether it's, you know, going to a soul cycle class or orange theory class in the morning or, you know, eating gluten-free, you know, for health or not eating dairy, et cetera. Um, there's more of a social stigma around eating healthy than necessarily even a health-focused one, at least what we can tell from, you know, the general BMI of this generation. Interesting, interesting. And I would think the, the obese part comes from the ones that sit on the couch and play video games all day? <laughs> Yeah, either that or they're they're working for companies who, you know, don't give great health benefits or, you know, don't put in walking desks or, you know, whatever the, the latest craze is. So I, I think that there's there's certainly a personal responsibility factor to, to it after all. Definitely. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. Um I did I did a question in regards to you, Gabriella. Do you see a bright future for our country and will, will we have, will, in your opinion, do you think we will have a millennial president soon? Well, you know, if it, it wasn't for what happened today, I think Mark Zuckerberg actually had a pretty good, a pretty good chance of that being him. But I, I think, unfortunately, his uh, fairly dry performance um, today on, on, in the hearing maybe, you know, zapped any any idea about what that looked like. But again, I mean, keep in mind, millennials are 37 years old. So we're just getting into politics. Um, you know, 37 is young, but it's not that young. Um, you know, we're, we're now at that age where taking seriously public office is a, is a, is a viable option. 
So, you know, a millennial president, we're still looking at, you know, another 20, maybe 30 years, I think, till we get a, a, a millennial who's, you know, going to be in that position. But, I mean, again, as a 37-year-old, you know, you can be in Congress, you can, you know, be incredibly mm-hmm. influential. Um, and, and I think that this generation is a generation who's very, in, wanting to be very involved. Um, I think that the, the challenge is going to be for the parties, if they're the ones who are wanting to, to recruit my generation, is to find, um, find a pathway for our generation to get involved and to feel like what they're doing is making a difference. And, and start to recruit us uh, early and often um, because we certainly are going to be a force to be reckoned with. But as I tell our clients all the time is if you don't equip this generation to say something about you, if you don't equip them as brand ambassadors, they will say something about you, but you just may not like what it is that they say. Right. Is there any millennial out there right now in, in the political circles that you find, you, you feel has a, a good chance to be a, a superstar of the millennial uh, generation? Yeah, I, I think that there are certainly quite a few. I think, um, you know, there's there are many in, in the nonprofit space. I think, you know, in the congressional space, Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii is a really um, interesting example of that. She's a millennial. She's a, she's a veteran, um, and, and she's, um, you know, a woman. She's got a, a really great story, extremely well-articulate, um, I think that we're going to see a lot from her in the future, and I think in terms of millennial politicians, I think she does a really good job of representing our generation um, and and giving kind of an honest voice and an honest path to both sides. Got it. Um, this just, just popped up. Uh, is there a difference between urban millennials and suburban millennials? Again, I mean, you're going to see a, a difference based off of, you know, who raised them. So certainly we see a, a difference between millennials who are raised in the Midwest, for example, versus those millennials who are raised on, on the coast. And, and that's mostly because of the values that they're going to be raised with, the, the right. value of a dollar, you know, working with your hands. I've worked with executives who, in the interview process, have actually asked candidates, you know, have you built anything with your hands, not just, you know, online? Um or with Legos, I guess, but um, but there's something to be said, I think, um, for a generation who um, who really has um, you know has so much diversity within the generation that again you can't assume you know oh well, you you know you were born in Iowa I know exactly what you think about the world or you're born in Florida right uh, so the the assumption. Um, you know, which I spend most of my day doing is, is analyzing kind of these, these trends um, while also right. to comparing it to the reality that every millennial truly is unique and, and there's power in knowing um, the, the movements and the trends, but there, it's also too just as powerful to keep in mind that there's so much variance within this massive generation. Uh, millennial, the generation here in the United States that are millennials are about the same size as the country of Germany. And so it's like right. saying, you know, all Germans are the same, which, you know, certainly isn't the case. So I, I think that it's powerful to study the trends, but also, too, to have a perspective that there's so much diversity to respect that diversity inside of the generation. And I think, I think besides values, like you had mentioned previously, um, initially, I think also millennials will be different in, in regards to class, uh, income, um, you know, I think the economics uh, will be, would be uh, uh, also a, a huge difference between each millennial too. Besides how they were brought up, like you had said, in the economics, uh, a young millennial growing up in 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 the hood and in, in, in the lower uh, in the ghetto, it's going to have a different uh, look, a different uh, impact on how the millennial. Has uh, has taken and affected him. Would that be uh, true? Well, we we're certainly living in in a time and an era, and frankly, a country where um, economic mobility, the ability to go from, you know, whether it's you know the hood or a trailer or you know you know one bedroom apartment um, to you know a mansion or a two bedroom apartment, you know, that economic mobility um, is really what most economists 
measure the success of a nation based off of it's not just the measurement of you know the the gap between the rich and the poor uh it, it really is do you have the ability at the end of the day to you know pull yourself up by those proverbial bootstraps and and make your life better make your family's life better and millennials certainly do i mean we were we were raised you know born in the 80s and the 90s when there was you know, an incredible boom in the economy, um, just recovering from a, a mini recession itself. Mm -hmm. And then we grew up with, with opulence and with access to information. And just as we were becoming adults, we were either in college, thinking about going to college or graduating when the, the recession hit. And that reset a lot of those mindsets of a generation who uh, essentially was then being forced to reconcile, you know, this mindset of, you know, everything's going to be okay, I'll always have money, you know, there'll always be someone who wants to hire me, to they're laying off not only me, but my parents. And and so right. I think that that adjustment has been um, extremely good, frankly, for a generation. And this is, you know, Gabrielle Boucher's talking, this isn't, you know, my research talking, um, but I think it was really good for my generation who's been labeled uh, an entitled generation um, yeah. that, you know, that we had that accountability and that reckoning because, you know, consider how entitled we really would be, you know, if we didn't have to come come face to face with a, an incredibly competitive economy and, and a challenging workforce. Well, you're, you, you, you are remarkable. I mean, uh, this is, this is actually uh, the future. It, it, you have a, a huge bright future ahead of you. Gabriella, I think that uh, definitely you you are the uh, you might be, I think you you could be running for for the highest office in the land one day. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. I, I certainly appreciate the conversation. I've I've had a great time talking to you. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, let me uh, since we're getting close to the uh, to the end, I want to make sure that that we cover this because this is. Uh, something a lot of our uh, listeners uh, wanted me to touch. What do millennials think about Donald Trump? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of statistical analysis. Now, we know uh, President Trump's approval rating has been going up um, really since the beginning of the year. Um, we're just hovering right above 50% right now. Um, and when you break that down generationally, the millennial side of things tend to be lower. Um, again, that's not really news because most young people tend to have unfavorable views of, of Republican um, of Republican uh, presidents. Um, although millennial perspectives of, of President Obama actually in the mid part of his year when he was running for a reelection. Um, are actually lower, interestingly enough, than the approval rating that millennials have for, for President Trump right now. So, um, I mean, by and large, millennials as a voting bloc did not vote for Do Donald Trump, but they didn't really come out in droves for Hillary Clinton either. Um, we didn't really see a huge rallying of millennials, particularly millennial women, for Hillary Clinton. So um, I think going into the midterm election, it's um, it's extremely interesting to see who millennials are going to be voting for. We're, again, we're leaning to the left. We're looking at you know, uh, numbers showing millennials supporting Democrats over Republicans. But um, I think Donald Trump has a huge opportunity to win over the millennial generation who in 2020 will be the largest part of the voting bloc. Um, so what an incredible opportunity to capture the attention and excitement of a massive generation um, who I really do think um, you know, despite the, the, the Twitter war and, and kind of the commentary that my generation has about Donald Trump's personality, as they would say it, um, I think that there's an incredible opportunity for the Trump administration to engage with a generation who um, is extremely entrepreneurial, would consider themselves libertarian like yourself, and, and frankly mm -hmm. just wants to, you know, want, wants an economy that's going to allow them to live the kind of life that they want to live. So I, I certainly think um, that, you know, if Donald Trump is interested in, in reaching and engaging the millennial generation, um, that, that that can be an, an, an achievable win for him at the end of the day. But I would, think, I would think that most millennials, since they've been involved in technology since they were so young, they would be very happy or appreciate Donald Trump being a Twitter, you know, twitting all the time because that's part of the new technology that surface. Right. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're, 
the part of growing up. Is that is that the case? Yeah, it's it's the access to leaders that I think millennials um, really appreciate. And we see that across the board. We see it in what millennials want of politicians, what millennials want of um, of their their corporate leaders, what millennials want of even brands or celebrities. It's you know, do I feel like I could talk to that person? Uh, and so I think certainly the the um, the Twitter um, presence of President Trump has certainly made him incredibly accessible, incredibly real. I mean, presidents used to be kind of this far and away kind of imaginary Oz. And and, and now we have a president who was extremely involved in the formation of the news before most of us, frankly, are awake. He's already, you know, tweeting and setting the news agenda for the day. So um, I I agree. I think millennials certainly have have a huge opportunity to connect to a president who's certainly ready and willing to connect to them. And I think he's taking advantage uh, of that in, a, in such a great way because uh, he, I believe he knows the importance of the millennials. And millennials are so te- technologically driven. And I think he captured that attention, even though they may not like his politics and they may not like his personality, but I think they do like the, 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 the use of technology to get the message out there. Wouldn't that be... Uh, True. Yeah, I think um, I think not just millennials, but I think every as American citizens, uh, I think we can certainly appreciate a president who, again, is is very accessible, is very uh, very present in the news, um, isn't just reacting, but is kind of setting the agenda. And I think is um, is someone who knows at a really deep level what's going on in the world. And, and I think it's extremely helpful for uh, a new generation. Some of them first voters. This last election was, for, for many of my generation, the first time that they're going to vote in a presidential election. 2020 will be a first for some others as well. Um, and I think it's an incredible opportunity for this generation to, um, to not only learn about the political process and participate in it, um, but to understand uh, the role that they can and should play the rest of their lives. Fantastic. Uh, Gabriela, if you can go ahead and, and let us know about your books, we can put your books on our website. And also, if you have a website or any events that you're going to be so we can p- promote you because you're definitely uh, top notch when it comes to to the future. I mean, the future you have ahead of you oh, that's waiting for you. It's, it's, it's very bright. So if you can go ahead and, and tell us about your books and, and the website and any any events that you might be um, doing so our listening audience and our uh, website uh, members can can um, buy purchase your books or where they can purchase. Yep, exactly. So they can learn more um, about us and our work. Um, my firm, the Millennial Solution at millennialsolution.com. Um, we do um, online trainings. We do we do consulting. We do certifications to actually certify people to become generational experts inside of their organization. Uh, and you can purchase my books and and um, you know bring me in to do executive briefs or we we speak at conferences all the time um, and learn more about kind of our speaking schedule at gabriellebochet.com. So that's millennialsolution.com and gabriellebochet.com. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on tonight, and you're always welcome to come back on our show. And um, thank you again, and have a great week. All right, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. All right, Okay. Have a good one. So we just had Gabriella Bosch on our program and uh, an expert in millennial. So let me just conclude, conclude that Ted Cruz today really took it to Mark Zuckerberg. And that is the true nature of a, a real true patriot like Ted Cruz is. We need more Ted Cruz in the Senate, in Congress. So when these individuals come to testify, we can show and expose them for who they are. That is very revealing, and I think Mark Zuckerberg showed his true colors today. What individual that has taken it upon himself to censor America 
Well, until next week, have a good night, and God bless America. We love you. In 1968,